1: Welcome to The District, a podcast about politics and culture by The Spectator World. My name is Matt Purple, and I'm joined by Amber Athey, and we're also joined today by Mark Hemingway. Mark is the senior writer at Real Clear Investigations. And on deck today, we're going to be talking about remarks that Joe Biden made yesterday when uh, the demagogue went down to Georgia, and he was very upset about the fact that Republicans have been blocking so-called uh, voting rights legislation that's before Congress at the moment. Uh, not surprising that Joe Biden would endorse that legislation. Democrats are not happy about legislation that's been passed by the GOP at the state level that they view as restrictive voting rights uh, but but very striking some of the uh, the the rhetoric that he used he said and this is a quote do you want to be on the side of dr. King or George Wallace do you want to be on the side of John Lewis or Bull Connor do you want to be on the side of Abraham Lincoln or Jefferson Davis turning a discussion about voting rights into, I guess, the Civil War all over again. Uh, even Senator Dick Durbin from Illinois, one of the more liberal members of the Senate, by the way, said that he thought Biden had gone too far with that. Uh, Mark, you heard the president's remarks yesterday. What do you make of all this?
0: There's a lot to unpack there with uh, what he said. Um, you know, well, on to start, uh, I found the comparison to George Wallace pretty interesting there because... Um, you know, Joe Biden's been in the Senate since nineteen seventy. Was it started in the Senate in nineteen seventy two? Uh, George Wallace was governor until nineteen eighty six. Uh, he did not. <coughs> Wallace did not renounce his views on segregation until the late nineteen seventies. And in the in that gap there between when Biden was in the Senate. Uh, And before Wallace renounced segregation, there were multiple occasions where Joe Biden publicly praised George Wallace. So as far as being on the right side of history in terms of being compared to George Wallace, we know where Joe Biden stands and he was on the wrong side. Um, You know, it, it was so it was disingenuous from, you know, just a sort of personal historical standpoint, but. In general, uh, you know, Mitch McConnell came out and said something uh, today about how you know I've known Joe Biden for you know decades and and uh, this you know this is not the you know, I like Joe Biden. This is not the Joe Biden I know. And, and I realize that new strange new disrespect routine probably plays well with the press. But, I mean, it wasn't that long ago, you know, and, you know, I, I guess it was a few years now, but, um, you know, Joe Biden said Mitt Romney wanted to put black people back in chains. I mean, he's always been a dishonest, unfair demagogue. Um, and this, know uh, the greatest trick but Joe Biden ever pulled in this political career was convincing people that he was some kind of, you know, reasonable, moderate Democrat, when the reality is he's, he's always been an especially craven um, guy who's willing to say anything to get ahead.
2: Yeah, you're right to identify this as a trend mark. Um, He also said in this speech that the millions of people who disagree with this voting rights legislation are essentially enemies of the state, referring to enemies, both foreign and And domestic. And he's done this throughout his presidency, attacking the American people, uh, whether it's through lawsuits against states that enact legislation that he disagrees with, going after parents in Virginia with the force of the um, Department of Justice and Attorney General Merrick Garland, uh, calling the unvaccinated uh, selfish people who are going to face a winter of severe illness and death. I mean, this. All around as an administration that really seems to just disrespect the American people, mock their concerns and not accept that they could have any political differences from the president without being fundamentally bad people.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think he was very much a creature of the Obama years in that regard. You know, um, that was... Uh, But the difference is, is that Obama had some really exceptional skill for saying incredibly divisive things that came off as pragmatic or were covered as such. Joe Biden completely lacks that kind of deft and grace that Obama had. Not that it was okay when Obama did it, but it's really transparently awful when uh, Joe Biden does it.
1: Yeah, Mark, you know, before we get to the the nitty gritty about voting rights itself, um, I'm curious about Biden personally on this score, because my theory is that we don't elect presidents anymore. We elect illusions. We elect sort of mirages of what we think these men are. And in fact, there's something very different. And of course, you can see that with Biden. You can also see that with Trump. I would with, with Obama. You can also see that with Trump. And, and you see it with Biden, too. You know, This so-called champion of women's rights who was very credibly accused of, of sexual assault, which we all seem to have forgotten about. Um, you know the uh, civil rights. He he lied about his involvement in the civil rights movement. He did that again when he was talking down in Georgia. I mean, there, there's just over and over again you see somebody who he portrays himself as something very different than what he is. And I, I think the biggest one is that he's supposedly a unifier, right? He comes out, he's going to be the man who's going to mend our differences after Donald Trump. And in fact, he's throwing verbal grenade after verbal grenade. He's trying to wash away all these, uh, all these these laws at the the state level. Um, you know, it, it, it's become a cliche to, to hope for a uniting president and actually find out that they're a divider, right? I mean, that's what it seems like what we do all the time. Um, are, are you struck by how much that's been the case with Biden?
0: No, because, like you said, I mean, I think this has been the case for a while. I mean, for no other reason than you know, presidential elections have turned into you know multi-billion-dollar branding exercises, you know, rather than exercises in democracy. Um, You know, I I think, but but you know, the I think the apotheosis of this was Obama's election. Of course, you know, Biden was a part of that, and I think the Democratic Party and Biden in particular probably internalized a lot of lessons. Then, you know, people have probably already forgotten what it was like um, in 2008 when Obama was running for president, and then. He was sold as this, you know, complete and total pragmatist. I mean, people were going out writing columns and saying that, you know, Obama would be good for pro-lifers. I mean, there was, there was absolute insanity in terms of what people wanted to believe in terms of, quote-unquote, hope and change and uniting the country. And, you know, within, you know, uh, you know, the first couple of things Obama did as president, well, you know, what did he do? He passed a $1 trillion spending bill that was basically a giveaway to um it was basically a giveaway to a bunch of democratic constituencies and uh you know he he uh at the behest of the teachers unions he killed dc's school voucher program which you know overwhelmingly benefited poor black children i mean like you go just on down the line i mean nothing about obama's presidency from the jump was uh, in any way shape or form you, you know unifying or dividing and yet it took three or four years before that to even like begin to like cement into a narrative that was you know broadly publicly acceptable um and uh you know, even then the media carried it forward you know to the end. The problem now is just that you know the media are still pushing these these, these you know re, quasi-religious notions of you know unification under our great leader um, and uh, they, they have no credibility left and, and all the institutions that say these things have no credibility left. So you you have a really the, the result is that the more that they push these false narratives, the more actually divided the country actually becomes because everyone smells it from a mile away and knows it's not true.
2: Yeah, and White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki tried to defend Biden's speech by basically saying, well, it wasn't as bad as Trump's. So she basically admits that, you know, it had its intended def- effect. It was meant to to be divisive, but she thinks that Trump's rhetoric was worse. And I think there's a fundamental difference there. Um, I didn't love all of Trump's tweets, but I th- I think for the most part, he was attacking politicians and institutions, whereas Biden goes after the American people, which made his speech so especially objectionable. But let's dig in a little bit into the um, the actual substance of this so-called voting rights bill, which is how it's been heralded in the mainstream press, um, because this is a federalization of elections and it it does it enshrines a whole lot of things that unfortunately led to the January 6th riot um, because they changed the voting rules so drastically under the pandemic. And to me, when these people talk about a saving democracy and how without this bill, democracy will continue to be under attack, this is a fundamentally anti-democratic bill because it really takes away the ability of states to decide their own elections and the ability to root out fraud.
0: Yeah, I I would think the first step here, and, and, you know, the media certainly can entirely skip this step for about a decade, would be demonstrating that there is a problem with, you know, voter fraud. I mean, sorry, not voter fraud, although that's certainly a thing we do. People have trouble demonstrating, um, but you no, know, proving there's a problem with voting rights. I mean, like, what large category of people are being unjustly denied their right to vote? Um, in fact, we just came off the heels of an election that was, you know, massive turnout, unprecedentedly so. Um, and there's, you know, no reason to believe that you know people are uh, have un, you know undue obstacles in terms of voting. In fact, I think uh, the opposite is probably true. I mean, part of what's going on. Here here is that the Democrats seized on a number of schemes here that are Dubious in terms of the expansion of mail-in balloting, the way that they've done it without any particular safeguards. I mean, I think it's possible to get to a place where, you know, there are particular safeguards in in, in place that make mail-in balloting safe. But I mean, the reality is, is that mail-in balloting allows for a lot of ballot harvesting schemes. Um, Ballot harvesting is where a third party goes around and collects someone's ballots and deposits them all at once, and you know, it's illegal in lots of places um, for you know good reason. And we overturned a you know congressional election in the last couple of years uh involving a republican campaign in fact um that involved ballot harvesting um so um, people are right to be suspicious that there was so much dramatic change to our election laws, you know, so quickly. And what's going on right now is I think the Democrats see that they benefited greatly from loosening the rules in a way that most Americans doubt and their reasons to believe would have, you know, significant effects in terms of voter integrity. Um, and Democrats are rushing to federalize this and institutionalize it before and, and claiming that it's necessary to protect voting rights. And, uh, you know, obviously, with all the counterclaims of fraud and everything else, you know, that that. Sort certainly, you know, amp, it certainly amplifies asp, um, aspects of the Democratic base and the media to, to defend it that way. But if you just look at the plain language of the statute, I mean, the ACLU is opposed to this for crying out loud um, for the way that it goes into, you know, differing issues in terms of uh, um, uh, campaign election, um, um, you know, restrictions and things, sorry, election spending restrictions and things like that on free speech grounds. I mean, it covers such a wide swath of territory. It's just kind of a dog's breakfast of bad ideas.
1: Yeah, to make the ACLU double back down on its old civil, civil libertarian stance, that takes a lot of doing these days, but that the legislation does seem to have done it. Um, the legislation a- at hand is called uh, the Right to Vote Act. It's it's winding its way through the Senate. Uh, there's very little chance of it, of it passing. It's based on H.R. 1, which was another bill that was in the House. And just to play devil's advocate for a moment, um, here's some of the things the Democrats are looking to do. They want to expand early voting and mail-in voting. They want to allow for at least 15 days before Election Day when that would be permitted and allowed. Uh, they're not going to wipe out voter ID requirements, especially in red states, uh, but they do expand the type of ID that you can provide. For example, you can use a student ID now, which seems a bit suspect, but that's, that's one thing you can present. makes Election Day a, a legal public holiday, uh, allows felons to vote once they've served out their, their convictions. Um, what's so wrong with this? What, what do you particularly object to about this?
0: Well, you know, um, one, I think that, um, one, I, I just think in general that there has been too much federalizing of everything in this country. In fact, one of the big lessons that came out of the pandemic, of course, was that allowing the states to operate on their own, um, you know, has great benefits for us as Americans. You know, we used to, you know, the the the, the cliche is that the states are the laboratories of democracies. you know, so one state can try something and if it doesn't work, the other states don't try it. But if one state does, the other states, um, uh, you know, will follow suit. Um, the problem is, is everything in this country is so politicized that, you know, for instance, no. One can admit that Ron DeSantis was largely right about COVID policy, um, and you know New York State was largely wrong in, in critical ways that killed lots of people. Um, so, um, but still, I think it's really healthy for the Americans to see that they can do things differently in their localities. And more than that, if there are particular problems in terms of you know fraud and other things that are going on, it's a lot easier to deal with you know I don't know corrupt machinery at the local level than it is to necessarily have to you know get a partisan federal government involved and you know and point out that what they're doing is, is is necessarily wrong but you know in general there's been a problem in this country i think for a long time you know it's largely one-sided which is that you know the last couple of years have sort of scrambled things a bit with republicans you know scrambling to prove fraud um when that you know isn't often uh, easily provable, um, but it's also true that there is a lot of documented fraud and problems with uh, you know election machines in places like Philadelphia and Milwaukee and things like that, and Democrats um, at the national and local level are, are not eager to, to go in and, and, and do anything about it. Um, and I think once you federalize elections and you federalize a lot of the things that they're doing uh, as legal in terms of ballot harvesting schemes and things like that, it will basically make it impossible to root out a lot of these you know, corruption uh, with, with elections.
2: Meanwhile, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer apparently already, ha- already has a plan in place to abolish the filibuster to pass this bill. However, he doesn't have enough votes, I don't think, to actually do that. He doesn't have Mansion or Cinema. Apparently, John Tester from Montana is also wavering on whether or not he would get rid of the filibuster to pass this. Um, and I, I heard a, a rather, I thought, a semi-effective speech from Tom Cotton yesterday where he was reading – uh, Chuck Schumer's old words about the filibuster in support of the filibuster. And I think that's nice to point out Democratic hypocrisy, but at a certain point, it doesn't seem like they really have enough shame to to care that they so wantonly changed positions. Is that your perception, Mark? And what should be the Republican response to them attempting to get rid of the filibuster?
0: <laughs> well, you know, the Democrats already did get rid of the filibuster in a quote unquote narrow sense before, and that led to three you know, um, Republican Supreme Court nominees under Donald Trump. Um, you know, ironically, one thing, you know, to bring this full circle, people never really talk about was that the last, it used to be that the Senate viewed its role in a, in a very, you know, much narrower advising consent uh, role uh, constitutionally for proving Supreme Court justices. So, um, in that respect, the, um, Antonin Scalia, you know, a very conservative justice who a lot of Democrats didn't like, was, uh, I think, confirmed to the Supreme Court by something like 98 0 or something like that. It wasn't until until Joe Biden, who was leading the Judiciary Committee, saw that his status as head of that platform was a way to elevate his his profile as he was running for president. That it completely blew up the Judiciary you know, nomination process, and we've ended up with all this acrimony that we've had today. Um, you know, it's it's you know, so that's just an you know a lesson here in terms of like how we should view, view blowing up the filibuster again in this quote unquote narrow sense. I mean, one of the remarkable things about American uh, um, constitutional government is that you know we are, I guess. I mean, we're technically, you know, a representative democracy or, you know, a a republic. But, you know, in a narrow sense, we are like the the largest functioning democracy the oldest functioning democracy in the world and part of the reason we've been that way is because we've had a degree of stability if you get rid of the filibuster which is one of the key ingredients of that filibuster you are end up in a situation here where you know you know democrats may pass this like voting rights thing but i don't think that voting rights thing is necessarily going to stop the onslaught of with of what's coming with joe biden's unpopularity where republicans are back in control in uh you know in uh, two years entirely and at what point you know if republicans control all three branches you know even with just a you know, a 50 something uh, vote majority in the Senate, then they can just, you know, start passing all manner of things that they, you know, they want to do simply because they warned Democrats repeatedly that if they abolished the filibuster, that it was going to lead to this, you know, you know, abolishing the filibuster for voting rights is going to lead to, you know, a national abortion ban and all these other things that Democrats don't want. um, And, you know, we're just going to go back and forth, ricocheting between voter preferences, you know, in a way that was very much not intended by the founders who wanted some, stability you know and didn't want quote unquote direct democracy that was you know establishing you know just you know narrow majority votes over and over again you know passing laws here and there um you know again the filibuster yes it's not in the constitution but i think it's very much in the spirit of the constitution in terms of the kind of stability that divorces sort of the animating you know um uh uh intemperate views of the public in a given moment, um, you know, and subdues that and makes it so that Congress just can't act on stuff immediately. Um, And I think that's a, that's a good impulse.
1: Hey, Mark, do you think part of the problem is the way that Congress has become today? Because I actually do think that under normal circumstances or under some circumstances, anyway, I might be opposed to the filibuster. It it does seem anti-democratic. It's not in the constitution, like you said. Um, But the problem, right, is that Congress is now willing to do things like, uh, wipe out voting laws at the state level in one fell swoop or spend $4 trillion in one spending package. You can get that through maybe with reconciliation, but the filibuster can make it a little more difficult. Uh, there's this tendency at, at the congressional level that if you don't like what's going on in the states, just wipe it all out. Or you know, if you're worried that the other party is going to take over at the midterms, just ram through as much as you can in these giant packages before that happens. And the filibuster seems like from that perspective seems like a check on a congress that's just completely out of control that that's functioning the way that it shouldn't um is that how you read it could you see a, a situation under which you might want to see the filibuster go
0: ha huh. that's that's actually a really good question um I mean, I don't know. I mean, I so I think that there were there have been some you know crucial changes you know constitutionally. One starting with direct election of senators, uh, in part of the progressive movement in the early part of the 20th century or whatever that I think accelerated a lot of these things that you're you're pointing out. Um, and I feel like the filibuster, even though again it's also not in the Constitution, counteracts that you know um, uh, that again that increasing the influence of direct democracy on you know the deliberative bodies um, in. in a way that is is healthy because you know i don't think that the founders intended to have you know that much democratic pressure on on um, on congress you know, yes it'd be democratically accountable in terms of how they'd be elected but they shouldn't be like you know democratically accountable day to day in terms of what they feel pressure to vote on and, and that's the situation we've arrived on it describes i think a lot of the crazy circumstances that you're you're getting at um, i don't know i mean i i i <laughs> I mean, certainly you can make an argument that somehow that there, there are cases where things have gotten so dysfunctional that things need to be done that, and they can't get anything done. Um but, um, if you look at a lot of the recent examples of say what's happening with the Democratic Party here, where they have a majority in, in both chambers and the presidency, but they can't get their agenda passed because what's happening is is that the agenda is so far to the left of the median democratic voter even. Um, so they're a prisoner of their own radicalism because their you know donors and their you know hardcore constituencies um, exert an undue influence on them relative to the you know average voter. Um, so I don't know if that's necessarily a, a sign of dysfunction in terms of the process so much as it's a sign of dysfunction in terms of the ideology of the party.
1: Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please check out more at spectatorworld.com. And if you'd like to listen to us, please check us out on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever podcasts are available.